So I want to share a story with you as we get started here. Um, during that last song, I was sitting off to the side, and, and Anna felt like she um, was prompted to just come and pray, and she didn't know what really about, but she came over and was praying for me. And as she did, um, I started to get this, this thought in my head. And um, the, we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it talks about these spiritual gifts. And often when we think of the gift of prophecy, many of us think of it in terms of end times and things like that. And the way Paul uses it often is also an encouragement for you, the church. And I believe that um, this, when I was being prayed for, I think we got an encouraging word for Emmanuel. And, and, he, and here it is, James 127. It says there that religion that God our Father finds as pure and faultless as this, to care for the widows and orphans, actually to visit the widows and orphans in their distress, and to keep yourself polluted from the world. And so what I had started to think about before you came over and was praying for me, I was like, I should probably reference, just in case somebody missed um, the opening, we had this whole front filled with people who are going to go visit folks in a really tough part of the world. And I encourage you to go back and take a look at that. And so an encouragement, Emmanuel, which means God with us, you're, you're doing what it is that God says to do. And the second part of that is to, the second part of the same verse is to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. And, and what we're talking about today is, is an area, we're talking about relationships. And if any area has been tainted by our brokenness, um, it is its relationships. And so I feel like the Lord wants to say to our church, well done, good and faithful servants, that we are a group that's sending people to go visit vulnerable people, and we're willing to have hard conversations about really important topics. So hear that from the Lord. Well done, well done, good and faithful servants. Well, today we are going to be looking at an especially loaded chapter of the Bible that deals with really high-stakes topics. So we need to dive right in. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. Our deepest longing is to get relationships right. Can I get an amen to that? You go at the deepest part of who we are. We want to get our relationships right. Every one of us, every one of us, we were created for community. And the deepest longings that we have are all related to our desire to connect. Well, because it's hard to get relationships right, because connection is hard, the, we are always asking ourselves, either consciously or subconsciously, we're asking ourselves, um, how do I get seen? How do I get known? How do I get loved? We may not know that, but that's at the, the heart of, of who we are. And I, there's a lot of voices out there that want to give you a lot of advice. And often that advice is not always as helpful as they think it is. When I was a kid, I remember there was a, a news, this thing called newspapers, and in there there was this advice column, uh, Dear Abby. I was too young to really read it or anything, but I remember there was something called Dear Abby, and what people would do, they would write in and say, Abby, I want your help. Give me advice, often on relationships. There's also an advice show on TV. I haven't watched a full episode, but it's been going 20 years. Maybe I should try it. Dr. Phil, maybe some of you heard of him. He, he's, he does the same kind of thing, a lot of advice, often on relationships. Again, I don't know enough about either of those two to give you an informed decision on whether or not, um, opinion on whether or not to listen to them, but here's two good, really good resources. Um, if you're married, this book, The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work, is outstanding. In fact, I think we gave you guys a, a copy of that when you guys were uh, we were doing pre-marriage with you guys. It's, it's good, isn't it? It's really good. They go, well, we'll let you know when we read it. Oh, thanks. No, I'm just kidding. 
Um, if you're single, if you're single and someday thinking about getting married, this is an outstanding resource too, not yet married. Um, those, I think we put the pictures up there on the screen. Take a look at those. They're, these are good supplements to the scriptures in terms of going deeper, specifically into relationships for, for specific folks. There's, there's a lot of good stuff out there. There's also a lot out there of advice giving that is giving us a whole lot of contradictory messages that's not helping us to connect the way we really are designed to connect, but to connect in other ways that are counterfeits to that. And with so many voices out there speaking to such a vital topic, I got a very important question for you, and I invite you to write it down. Whose guidance are you trusting? Whose guidance are you trusting in the area of life that matters most? I'm one of many who believe there's a good father, good father who wants to help. He knows us better than we know ourselves. It's not just me reading words that I typed out here. I really believe that. The longer I live, the more I believe that. And we have these carefully vetted documents in the scripture. I believe these are God-breathed. And so much of what's in there talks about these relationships. For the last 10 weeks, we've been looking at a first century letter that's included in our Bible. It was written by a man named Paul to a church that he founded in a city called Corinth. Over time, that church became so divided and so dysfunctional that they sent a delegation all the way across the Aegean Sea to go track down Paul to say, hey, we need some help. This thing is an absolute mess. And the section of our Bibles we call 1 Corinthians, it's an actual letter that he wrote in response to these issues. Well, one of the areas that they were really struggling with in Corinth, in that time and that place, were relationships, especially when it came to sex. The Corinthians had a reputation for pushing sexual boundaries further than just about anybody, so much so that apparently there was a Greek verb that was really, you would translate like acting like a Corinthian, which means you had just, your, your boundaries sexually were really out of control. So here's a quote. This is a quote that reflects how Christ, Corinthian men viewed the world back then. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives bear us legitimate children. That was the thinking of the day. And that was the situation that Paul spoke into. And in chapter 5, which we looked at last week, Paul calls out the church. He says, hey, that guy that's sleeping with his father's wife, that's not okay. So you had some people going that far. And in chapter 6, Paul gets into more of why God's boundaries are in place when it comes to sex. Now, today what we're going to look at is chapter 7. And in chapter 7, Paul takes on more of that Dear Abby role, that Dr. Phil role, where he now has specific questions that were sent his way that he's responding to. He's trying to help them, giving them some relationship advice. If you're taking notes, I want to invite you to write this down. In chapter 7, Paul addresses questions. Questions about sex, dating, engagement, marriage, divorce, separation, singleness, and more. In the words of N.T. Wright, the Corinthian uh, Christians were, quote, facing a bewildering array of moral questions and difficulties. Can anyone relate to that? Bewildering array. Well, here we see Paul. He shifts into full pastoral care mode. He's like, I care about you. Let me give you some advice about relationships since this matters so much. Well, one of the things you're going to notice as we work our way through chapter 7 is Paul's doing his best to help these people that he loved to learn to think, to reflect, and not to just go along with what everybody else is doing, to really think and reflect. And there's a lot at stake for the people that God loves and Paul loves. So Paul's going to go there. So let's go there too. 
If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd encourage you right now, hit pause, go and uh, to Bible.com. They've got a great app, Bible app that you can download. All right, here we go. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Um, oh, yeah, it was here right there. Let's pause. So while most of Corinth was too promiscuous, what we just see here in, in verse 1, there's others who now are going too far the other direction. And what they're saying is, okay, Paul, we got you. We get it. What you're saying is sex is off limits. So we're even telling our married people, no sex. And Paul's like, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. Verse 2, he says this, he goes, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman should have her own husband. So Paul's point is not, nobody should ever have sex ever. Paul's point is this, and we've pre-written these next one. They're going to come rapid fire here. So we pre-wrote, if you downloaded the notes page today, we pre-loaded these up for you. Um, here's, here's a point that is made pretty early in this. A faithful marriage is God's, the creator's context for sex. I came across a quote that summarized this uh, biblical boundary well. In Jewish law, intercourse sealed a marriage union or betrayed it. Next week, what Pastor Dan is going to do is he's going to unpack now uh, verses 1 through 7. And I'm really excited. You've seen the outline and things. He's done a great job with that. Verses 3 through 7 talk about sex within marriage. And here's a quick teaser if you're um, looking at the notes. Sex shouldn't be selfish. Quick teaser for next week. Now, those types of things come, they seem to be pretty obvious for us living in our time and in our place. But back then, it was such a different world. Such a different world. If you were a man in those days, what Paul is about to say and what he says from here on out to the rest of, of chapter 7 would have felt ridiculously restrictive. They would have said, what are you even talking about, Paul? This was a world where under Roman law, a newborn baby wasn't legally a person until dad said so. That's the world that women were um, born into. They were a commodity. That was the way. This was an age, especially in Corinth, when a man, as we read earlier, he might have a mistress who he shared a special connection with. He would have slaves that could be his own little harem. And then he would also visit prostitutes on occasion. If he had a wife, she would manage the household and be the mother of the heirs. That was the way. For men, committing adultery was wrong, but the reason it was wrong is because that wife was someone else's property. That's why it was wrong in the ancient world. That was the way. If you were a male slave, if you were a male prisoner of war, or a young Greek boy, and you had an adult male mentor, your consent didn't matter either. That was the way. We are, so few of us are taught, I know I wasn't growing up, so few of us are taught the manner in which Christianity changed the world. We are going to today, we are looking, I got chills talking about this, Today, we are going to look at words that changed the world. Prior to words like these, lived out then in behaviors of those early Christians. This was not how it was. These words, through the power of the Holy Spirit and through men and women who lived it out, changed the world. Here's an example of the kind of quotes that you're going to come across when you study this section of Scripture. Sex as a commodity was a pillar of the Roman Empire. Christian social exit ethics developed as a rebuke of the world. Christians claim that Christ gave us the kind of freedom that allows us to choose sexual holiness 
Truly consensual sex was a rarity in the world in which Christianity got to start. Christianity, we might say, invented consensual sex. Roman women were not free to marry. Christian women could choose, even insist on celibacy. For Christians, women weren't property or baby makers. Men weren't lust machines or power mongers. Right? These are the world-changing words, the words that led to this. Let's take a look. Verses 8 through 9. To the unmarried, to the widows, I say it's good. It's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. It is better to marry than to burn with passion. This might be a good place to bring something up. That several people, as I was preparing this message, they say, Chris, somewhere mention this, because we've seen this happen so many times. If you're a teen, if you're a young adult, if you're single, I invite you to really listen up here. Um, what you don't want to do is you don't want to take these verses that we just read out of context. You don't want to take them out of context. Paul is not saying that you should rush into marriage so that you can have sex. The, the number of times I've heard now stories of people who, especially often in Christian colleges, they, they, they love each other, they care for each other, they want to try to hold to Christian boundaries. And so they're like, we can't wait to have sex, so let's get married as soon as we, we can. They get married and they realize, oh, marriage is so much more than this. And then they, and I'm seeing a whole bunch of nods in here. This, and so they realize, oh, I shouldn't have rushed in. I should have got to know that person better. I should have got to know myself better. So I, I just say that to you. Um, it, it, we see Paul in these verses that follow. One of the things that Paul is doing, he's saying, he, he's, it's, he's putting extra emphasis on singleness. He is, he's really talking over and over about the benefits of it. Because marriage is the most significant decision, one of them at least, the, the person's ever going to make. All right, well, this whole idea of the benefits of singleness, that's another of the bullets that we included in this week's um, notes. Paul repeatedly in this chapter highlights the strengths of remaining single. At this point in Paul's life, he's not married. We don't know if he was never married. We don't know if he's a widower. We don't know if his life, wife left him when he became a Christian. What we do know is that Paul repeatedly highlights the advantages of being single, especially for believers. Now, I don't want to have this swing too far the other way. Does this mean that Paul minimizes marriage? No, he doesn't minimize marriage. It's important for us to remember the context of this letter. Here's a quote that speaks to that. In this chapter, Paul is not writing a treatise on marriage, but answering questions that have been sent to him. Paul holds marriage in very, very high regard. In another of his letters, Ephesians chapter 5, you could go there. And, and Paul, he really talks so much about the sanctity and the importance of marriage. We'll actually talk about that more in a second. What's important, though, for Paul to do as he's emphasizing, emphasizing singleness, he needs to tip the scales that direction. Because so many people, that's not even an option in their mind. It's not even an option in their mind. As much as Christians today, especially if you're in a church, you feel like, I gotta, I, I, being single is just hard, it's awkward, I, I'm supposed to be married. The expectation, surprisingly enough, was even greater than, greater than in this time that Paul sent this letter to. In the Gospel of John, um, we read about a woman that meets um, Jesus at a well. She'd been married five times, and many of us go, five times, that's that's crazy. What we often forget in our time is that back then that wasn't all that crazy. In that time and in that place, a woman might be married three times by her mid-twenties. For example, in the book of Acts, we're introduced to Herod's grand, grand, uh, granddaughter, Bernice, 
She was married twice by the time she was 16. Twice by 16, and then she got married to a king after that. Because of social pressures, because of economic pressures, and the uh, the pressure and the, the, the need to provide greater physical and legal protection, widows, if you're a widow, you're expected to marry within a year. If you were divorced, you're expected to marry within six months. Singleness was considered unfortunate. It was considered undesirable. It was considered a temporary situation. So what does Paul do? Paul goes the extra mile to remind people of the benefits of being single, especially as a believer. And it's almost as if it's like this. He recommends remain single. He concedes get to get, you can get married. It's almost like what he does in this, in this, uh, in this uh, chapter. All right, well, if you do choose marriage, Paul is very, very clear. If you go in, you don't go in with a plan B. Paul just goes from topic to topic. So now he's going to talk about marriage here a little bit more. Let's go back to our text, verses 10 through 11. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. When Paul says, it's not just me saying this, it's the Lord, he means that literally. He's he's talking about Jesus. Um, Jesus literally had some very strong statements about divorce. In those two verses, Paul reminds Christian couples that they have the option of separation, which many people often forget when a marriage is struggling. We introduced or included a bullet about that in your notes too. Separation from a believing spouse is preferable to divorce. All right, let's continue reading. Verses 12 through 13. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. What appears to be going on here is that some people were becoming Christians and then the spouse that they were with wasn't a Christian. So they said, well, what the right thing to do is for me to divorce them so then I can go marry a Christian. And Paul said, no, that's not not what I'm recommending here at all. Do the best you can to show that person that you're married to God's love and, 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 and who he is. We included this bullet in your notes. If an unbelieving spouse keeps their vows keep yours. Paul reminds the Christians or the Corinthians that becoming a Christian is not a grounds for divorce. If at all possible, Paul urges us to stay in the marriage and model our commitment to Christ. But what if the unbelieving spouse walks away? Paul addresses that too. Again, these come like, as well as the question, what if my spouse dies? In your notes, you'll find this. If an unbelieving spouse walks away or if a believing spouse passes away, you may pursue a new relationship with a believer. All right, if you were tuned out on some of these things or if these were fueling um, what happens in a lot of people where they just, if they find somebody who has gone through a divorce and they just come down so hard on these people, are are, are these things we just read the only grounds that the Bible offers? No. In fact, Jesus himself says if if there's unfaithfulness, that, that empowers the person who was cheated on to be able to walk away from that marriage. The Bible does not forbid divorce in all situations. So please, please, please be very, very, very careful in having conversations. Be very, very careful in what you do when you're, when you're talking about these really important and sensitive topics. And for those who are married or are considering marriage, also remember that marriage is considered sacred and our vows are not to be taken lightly. Okay, we're only 16 verses in. Consider how much we've covered already. In this, in this, Paul was just going from one thing to another. Sex outside of marriage, sex within marriage, singleness, marriage, separation, and divorce. 
What do you do if you're married to an unbeliever? And even whether or not it's okay for believers to remarry if their spouse dies. That, that's a lot of topics. And it's all coming so fast. I wonder if the rapid-fire nature of these first 16 verses is in part to emphasize the point now that Paul is going to make. Are you ready for that point? Verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that God has assigned to him or her and to which God has called them. This is my rule in all the churches. Paul now puts into this passage pretty early on the notion of calling, the notion of calling. From here until the end of the chapter, there is this feeling now of, okay, get married, stay single, whatever, just keep Jesus at the center. It almost has that feeling. And see, I encourage you to read it all, you know, everything. We don't have time to go through all the verses. Tell me if that doesn't have that feeling from here on out. Hey, yep, there, there, you can make a case for getting married, make a case for getting single, <laughs> being single, keep Jesus at the center. That's what really matters. Wherever you are, whatever state you're in, married or single, separated or divorced, even slave or free, look for ways to honor God right where you are. It can look like Paul is going off on tangents even, but it's all related. Like here, right in the middle of all these discussions that we're having, this is included, verses 18 through 19. And it's like, why are you talking about this? Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts or anything, uh, for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. Why is he talking about circumcision in this conversation? Because it's more, it's reinforcing this theme. And we put that in your notes. This theme of practice, radical agency, wherever you are. Right where you are right now. Extreme agency. In that time and in that place, there were some Christian men who did not grow up Jewish. And they were considering circumcision so they could fit in with the Jewish men. Other Christian men did grow up Jewish, and they were considering, I didn't even know this was a thing until doing the study here, they were considering a type of surgery available to them that would make them appear more Greek. In the locker room, Paul says this, he goes, don't worry about all of this. Verse 24, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Paul encourages all of us. If you're single, if you're married, if you're married and your marriage is struggling, if you're separated, if you're divorced, if you're married and you become a Christian and your spouse doesn't, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you want to keep Christ at the center, especially when things are hard, especially when you're like, I never dreamed of where I'm, and I'm at where I'm going to be at. Keep Jesus at the center. When things are good, keep Jesus at the center. Jesus matters more than anything else. In the verses that follow, Paul applies this to those who are betrothed. Now concerning the betrothed, I've got no command from the Lord, but I give judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as they are. If Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if betrothed, woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry have worldly troubles. I want to spare you from that. This is what I mean, brothers, sisters. The appointed time has grown very short for the present form of this world is passing away. 
the world that is, is going to pass away. I think that's one of those things that right now we've just so lost track of. If you talk about, like earlier I opened up with James at 127, that's one of the ways brokenness has fallen in. We, we, we forget this world's passing away and we focus on these things that, that matter and there's a foundation that's at the core of it all. This world will give way to a world that will be. We don't exactly know when, but we know this. Time is short. Time is short. The present form of this world is passing away. Because time is short, Paul reminds us, remain focused on that which matters most. Verses 32-35. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the world, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about world things, how to, worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And an unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. The married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. In your notes, we included this. Marriage divides our devotion. Does that mean that, again, that Paul minimizes marriage? Not at all. I referenced Ephesians 5 earlier. Christian marriage was actually meant to be a way that we model. We model this relationship between Christ and his church. So it's a high calling, but it's one of many callings. This quote made me smile. (laughs) When we see how Paul is talking about marriage here, this New Testament professor said this. He goes, there are a lot better things which can be said about marriage than it's not a sin. <laughs> which is kind of what Paul is saying here. If you got to do it, you're not sinning. If you got to get married. I mean, again, think of how countercultural that sounds to us. And even then more so. He's taking something that the Bible elevates and he's saying, even that, there's things that matter more. And you're not even going to have the marriage that you hope for if Christ is in the center of it. You're not going to be content as a single without Jesus. It, Jesus. And that's the last bullet we have in the ones already filled in. Jesus matters more. Pick your thing. Jesus matters more. If I had to summarize chapter 7 in eight words or less, I'd go with this. Time is short. Keep your eyes on Christ. If you're single, if you're dating, if you're engaged, if you're married, if you're separated, if you're divorced, time is short. <laughs> keep your eyes on Christ. If you're circumcised, if you're not, time is short. Keep your eyes on Christ. If you plan to see the Barbie movie, which my family thinks I should go to, or you don't, time is short. I'm going to keep my eyes on Christ, not Ryan Gosling with spray tan. When, when Jesus matters more, think about this. Sorry about that distraction. When Jesus matters more to us than marriage. When Jesus matters more to us than sex, these two things that have become idols in our world, think how different we're going to look. That's going to get people's attention. And that if we're single, if we're married, we're doing the best we can by God's grace to put Christ at the center. If our marriage is strong, if it's struggling, and we're doing our best by God's grace to put Christ at the center. If we're recovering from horrible things that happened to us, if by God's grace you're putting Jesus at the center. Think how different that's going to look from our world. When Jesus matters more, then something else that Paul wrote is going to be true to us as well. This is from 2 Corinthians 3.3. 3. You show then that you are a letter from who? From Christ. Then you're going to show that you're a letter from Christ, written not with ink, but with the Spirit 
of the living God. And as I go through the, these lists that Paul covers so fast, I know people who are single and they are living letters. I know people who are separated. They are living letters. I know people who are married who are living letters. I know people who are divorced who are living letters. All of us can be that. Here's our invitation then to you, plural, as an individual, but also us, plural. I invite you to write it down. We invite you to passionately pursue a relationship with God. Passionately pursue. Jesus of Nazareth, he lived the life that Paul is describing, a life of undivided devotion. Jesus didn't talk much about marriage, but when he did, it seemed to apply, imply that when this world in his present form passes away, our relationship with God and one another is going to be so complete that marriage itself is going to be like a shadow. That's what we have waiting for us. When the bridegroom comes back for his bride, the church. So, together as a body, who are in so many different places, who share one calling to follow Jesus, let's make the most of the moment that we have right here, right now. As singles, as people who are dating, as engaged couples, as married people, as someone who's separated or divorced, let's all of us together as his bride, let's commit to passionately pursuing Christ. Can we do that right now? Let's do it. Lord, I can only imagine how difficult this message was for so many people. And Father, as we, we try to pray on a regular basis, we pray that anything that was just my words or even my tones that were not of you, Father, I pray that that would filter away and that which your Holy Spirit wants to speak would, would, would shine through. I pray that each and every person wherever they are. And we, we come from so many different places with our relationships, Lord. We pray that each and every person could sense your desire to meet them right where they are and to give them what they need, not only to, to anchor, but also to be these living letters. And Father, we pray that by your grace, we would be that corporately that together we could be a group of people who are cheering one another on, welcoming one another in, and together doing the best we can by your grace and through your spirit to model something different, to be these living letters that the world needs to see, living letters that are going to cause some people to say, wow, wow, there's something different about them and that something different is good. We pray this in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen.